Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Give ear to God's holy word. It says, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's once again uh, pray and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great last book of your scriptures that you have given to us. Thank you for the message that we're seeing in this particular passage of the great hope of heaven that you have given and assured for all those who are in Christ by your mercy and by faith in him. And we ask once again that you would teach us your word, give us understanding into these things. Uh, we pray that you would help us not to be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but that we would also be doers of the word as well. Uh, work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I, I tend to repeat some things now and again as we go through this book, and I think that's helpful to kind of remind us how to look at the book in a, in a broad uh, scope, a broad way uh, of seeing things as a whole. And uh, two of the things that I think are key to this book and even to this chapter in some ways is that uh, John, John is giving us this book, or Christ gives this book through John, uh, and the first things that we find is that uh, the things that John tells us in, the, in these visions are given in a symbolic way. In other words, they're given in, in, in the form of visions with signs and symbols. And the second thing is all these visions in Revelation are cyclical in nature. In other words, you don't read properly the book of Revelation as if the events in chapter 1 are followed in, in chronological order by all the events all the way through the end. It can be a very confusing way uh, to read the book. Uh, the first thing is these visions are given by John to teach us literal truths in a symbolic fashion. Uh, this is taught in the very first verse of the book, especially if you have a King James Bible. It puts the very first verse of the book, Revelation 1.1, this way. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And here it is. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Signified there, that, that word is the same word uh, that we get the noun form of it is a sign. Like when Jesus in the book of John is said to have done miraculous signs, it's the same root word there. It's a sign 
or a symbol, these things that he gives in these visions. And so Jesus Christ, our Lord, signified all these things to John in a symbolic, in a vision fashion. So these visions and uh, signs, they're signs and symbols of the things that are yet to come. Uh, We've said before that Revelation is a picture book more than it is a puzzle book. Not that there aren't things that we have to try to discern and figure out in some ways, but it's more of a picture book than a puzzle book. And the second thing is these visions and Revelation throughout the whole book in a lot of ways are cyclical in nature. In other words, they, they, they say the same things in some ways over and over again, and most commentators, many of them, that is, have said that they have found seven of these cycles of visions in the book of Revelation, and we are now starting the last of those sevens. You know how, how important the number seven is in Revelation? Well, even the number of visions reflects that, and we are starting the last one, and it's no coincidence that in this last one, it's kind of the best one in some ways. It's the capper of the whole book. It's a vision of heaven, and that's what uh, what we're going to see this morning. So these, these cycles of visions, uh, William Hendrickson, who wrote a great book on Revelation called More Than Conquerors, calls it progressive, para- uh, progressive parallelism. In other words, they, they repeat in some ways the same span of time, uh, but it's, in a, it's like an ascending order. And so we're at the crescendo of the book in some ways with this last uh, final vision. This is the climactic vision of the entire book of Revelation that we're looking at this morning, and this vision stretches all the way through chapter 21 into the first five or so verses of the last chapter, which is chapter 22. Here in our text, in verses 1 through 8, what we're given is a vision of the blessed reward of the saints. Uh, It's pictured for us in a way that's perhaps not found in any other place in Scripture. What we're given here is a vision of heaven. It's, it's kind of the best our, our minds can probably grasp as these kinds of details told in this way. We're seeing a vision of heaven here in the first eight verses. Now, you and I, uh, I, I I'm, I'm guessing, I assume, you shouldn't assume too many things, but I assume most of us or maybe all of us, if you've read Revelation once or a hundred times, you found it to be somewhat difficult. If you've read different books on Revelation, you've probably come to the conclusion as I have. I have a stack of commentaries in, you know, in my office on the bookshelves and on the desk. And this is, a, I'm playing loose a little bit here. If I have, if I have ten of them, and I probably have more than that, uh, they don't agree on all the details. That's an understatement. There might be nine different views to some degree in ten commentaries. Not, not on the big pictures, but on the little things in some ways. Uh, and so you you may have read Revelation, maybe as I've been preaching through it, you found yourself having difficult a uh, difficult time following along and understanding uh, the broad brushes uh, of the book. But here in this passage is one of those passages where I think you are reminded you know Revelation much better than you think you do. That you you don't have trouble interpreting Revelation twenty one verses one through eight. I may be of some help to you in that regard in some of the small details, but I think there's not a person in this room who can read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, and even the following verses with difficulty. You read it and you're like, amen. I know what that's saying. Even if I don't know what all the details mean, I know what this is about. This is about my home in heaven by God's grace. And so uh, I think this is going to be something we'll find easily edifying uh, for us. You understand and I understand these verses I think quite well. This has often been, for a long time, this has been one of my favorite parts of Scripture. These first, especially the first four verses or so, um, and I'm sure I'm probably not alone in that regard as well, but 
you know, and why is it? Why do so many of us love Psalm 23? Why do so many of us love this passage of Scripture? I think it's uh, it's obvious, right? There's so much comfort to be found uh, in in this book. It's a, it's like an overflowing spring of comfort in all circumstances of our lives uh, for the souls of all believers. But having said that, you know, for the same reason, preaching a text like this can be, at least for, for myself, can be a little bit intimidating. You know, I've preached on Psalm 23 a number of times. I've now preached on preaching on this. The, the most familiar and most beloved passages are the ones that you're almost afraid to touch. You know, I, I was semi-joking around earlier uh, with with Rebecca and I said, you know, I, I almost feel like I should just read the text and sit down. You know, read the text, give the benediction, and we all go home. Because what you know, what can you say about a passage like this? I, now, don't don't get me wrong, we're not going to do that. But uh, you may, fact, at the end of this sermon, you might think, well, you had an awful lot to say about that short passage, uh, Pastor. Um, but some of these more familiar, more beloved passages can be kind of in an odd way, harder to preach because you feel like you're just going to get in the way. And I hope that won't be the case this morning, that as I try to attempt to describe, interpret, and apply these things, I hope that you'll find these things to be uh, edifying for this passage. So we'll try to do this great passage justice. I hope that you will forgive the inadequacies of your pastor in this regard but uh, and focus on the text. Now, what, why do we preach Revelation uh, in particular? You know, in the first chapter of the book, in verse 3, it says that there's a blessing promised to the one who reads it aloud. Yay, I get to read it aloud and preach it. Blessing to the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and it's also a blessing for you. It says, blessed are those who what? Who hear, and then it says, and who keep what is written in it. It's not a book for curiosity's sake. It's not a book of trivia. It's not a book just so we can kind of solve the puzzle and fix the Rubik's Cube and that kind of a thing. It's meant to be read, it's meant to be understood, and it's meant to be applied and and followed and kept. And so we're going to press on this morning, hopefully, and see what uh, blessing of growth and grace God may give to us by his work and preaching of his word, which Isaiah 55 says, his word, what does Isaiah 55 say? His word never returns void. It always accomplishes his purposes uh, in us, as Isaiah 55.11 tells us. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, uh, we looked at the previous passage in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15, and there we saw, in, in kind of, in some ways, a kind of an astounding vision of the defeat, the final defeat of Satan, where Satan is cast finally at long last into the lake of fire. And we've also seen in that text the final judgment of the wicked and the unrepentant. We saw there that both the devil and the unrepentant alike will be cast into the lake of fire, which is hell. Our own text here also mentions that to some degree at the very and now, what we're looking at this morning is the polar opposite of that. In other words, part of me thought last week I should have tried to preach through this passage as the bookend. Because that's really what's, what's being done here is we see the, the devil and the beast and the false prophet and all the unrepentant cast forever into the lake of fire. And as scary and as frightful as that vision may sound to us in, in some ways, this is the other side of the story. As bad as that is uh, for the unrepentant and the wicked and for the devil himself, although it is much deserved and it's a just punishment from God, this is the good in this part far outstrips even that. You know, people, I, you may have uh, talked to someone in, in your life that uh, says, in fact, I read of a famous football player this past week uh, who said he couldn't believe in a God, I'm paraphrasing, but it's what he said, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who would send people to hell. 
And that's a very common sentiment. We think, oh, how could a loving God do that? Well, read Revelation 21. Can you believe in a God who would do this for sinners? That should be, that should amaze us more. You and I should be more shocked that this is about our home in heaven, these verses that we just read in verses 1 through 8. We should be much more shocked by that than we are shocked that God would send a wicked sinner who has hated him all their lives to hell and rebelled against his holy law. We should be much more shocked in a good way about about this. And so we're going to look at this passage about the polar opposite, about the good things. This is the good news for the believer in Christ that corresponds and far outweighs the bad news for the unrepentant. We're going to see what the good news is that waits us, all of us who are in Christ by faith. And so, you know, it, it goes without saying, I think, but I'll say it anyway. Many of us, I'll include myself in that, uh, we don't think about heaven enough. We don't think, I don't think about heaven enough. Maybe you don't either. We're going to hopefully rectify that a little bit this morning by looking at our text. So John, John tells us of a few things here. The first thing we're going to see, it's kind of the, the overarching point of our text. In verses 1 through 5, John is, to, is going to describe through this vision about Jesus, about God making all things new. Look at verses 1 through 5 again. It says, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the first thing there in verses 1 through 5 that John tells us of in this vision is that the Lord is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, verse 1. Now, why Why is that? Well, he says, for the old, the first heaven, that is, and the first earth had passed away. It's as if there's been a, a funeral and a burial, and, and there's going to be a resurrection. And the sea is no more. God has done away with the old, but not just to, get, not just to do away with it. We are not Gnostics. We don't believe that the creation is a bad thing. What God is going to do is make a new creation. In a lot of ways, maybe you notice this as you were reading along. In a lot of ways in our text, and and really throughout the end of the book here, we're going to hear a lot of echoes of of the book of Genesis. A lot of echoes of the bookends of the Bible, the first book and the last book of Scripture. Here the Scriptures kind of come full circle in a lot of ways and that's not an accident. That's by God's purposes. In his book, More Than Conquerors, William Henriksen writes, forgive me, this is a little bit of a long paragraph, but he says it better than I could, and so I want to give attribution to it. William Henriksen writes this, Genesis tells us that God created heaven and earth. First verse in your Bible, right? Uh, Revelation describes the new heaven and earth. In Genesis, the luminaries are called into being sun, moon, and stars, In Revelation we read, And the city has no need of the sun, nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God lightened it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21-23. Genesis describes a paradise which was lost. Revelation pictures a paradise restored. 
Genesis describes the cunning and power of the devil. The apocalypse, it's Revelation, tells us that the devil was bound and hurled into the lake of fire and brimstone. Genesis pictures that awful scene of man fleeing away from God and hiding himself from the presence of the Almighty. Revelation shows us the most wonderful and intimate communion between God and redeemed man. Behold, he quotes, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall tabernacle or dwell with them. Finally, whereas Genesis shows us the tree of life with an angel to keep the way to the tree of life, lest man put forth his hand and take of its fruit, the apocalypse restores to man his right to have access to it, quote, that they may have the right to come to the tree of life. Gen- uh, Revelation 22, verse 14. So you, there's a lot more that can be said than even that, but he shows all these ways that these final chapters of Revelation kind of bring the whole thing full circle and put a bow on the whole thing. All the things that sin and Satan had done that to ruin God's good creation, it's all going to be made right at the end. God is going to make all things new. He, he mentions in verse 1, It may have sounded like a strange thing to your ears when you heard it or read it. He says, the sea was going to be no more. No more sea, no more ocean. Now, why is that? Is that because water or the ocean is inherently evil? I don't think that's really the point. It's not that, but it's because very often the sea in the scriptures is associated with chaos and danger. Chaos and danger, it's also the place of of storms and unrest. It's In a lot of ways, it's a scary place. You remember the book of Jonah. There was a great, the Lord hurled a great storm because Jonah wasn't doing what God wanted him to do, and he was going to die. The sailors were going to die if they didn't do what God told them to do through his prophet. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and then a storm came up, and seasoned fishermen were terrified. They thought they were going to die. You think about what we're going to read soon in Exodus when the people of Israel came up to the Red Sea. The Red Sea was a death sentence to them. They had nowhere to go from Pharaoh's chariots until God split the sea in two. You have the flood of Noah's ark and so on. It's a place, it's a picture of chaos and danger and storms and unrest. Also in Revelation in verse, in verse one of chapter 13, where did the beast arise from? From the sea. He arose from the sea to make war on the saints. So that, that's one of the reasons this is gone. No more chaos, no more unrest, no more storms, no more dangers. It's as if, what does it say in the psalm, in the 23rd psalm this morning? He leads us beside still waters. There's not going to be any more choppy waves and danger in, in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth are a picture of a new creation, of a restoration of the things, the way things were meant to be when God first created things, before sin and misery entered the picture and brought death to all men. This promise of a new heavens and new earth is actually promised in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament thing. Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's going to be so good you're not going to give a second thought to the old heavens and old earth. Revelation 21, in a lot of ways, is rooted in and is found to have echoes of Isaiah 65. That chapter also speaks of a new Jerusalem there as well. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes of a new heavens and a new earth as well. Unless unless we read Revelation and think, well, this is all just signs and symbols, who knows what it really means? He, He talks about a very similar thing 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, 7 through 13, Peter writes this. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things, Peter writes, since, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Here it is. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's he saying? He's saying more and more we are to, by faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit, live more and more like we're going to live then. That living a holy life now is, in a, in a sense, one of the things it reflects is a faith, a trust in God's promise that this present world, this present heaven and earth, uh, with the sin and misery attached to it, are going to be destroyed, and there's going to be a new one, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, there, there is a an application to eschatology right in that passage, isn't there? It's not there for giggles. It's not there for trivia. It's not there just because I kind of want to know and solve the puzzle so I can think I have this knowledge other people don't have. We are all tempted, I think, sometimes to have that kind of a mindset. He, he paints a very different picture there. This, he said, faith and belief in these things should cause us to live much differently. We should, by faith, we should live a life of holiness unto God. Holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Likewise, God's delay, at least the way some people think of it as a, as a delay, should cause the, the wicked to repent. They shouldn't, they shouldn't say to themselves, well, you know, God hasn't sent the lightning bolt yet. So I, I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. He's giving them time. They're, they're misreading God's providence and his patience. It's the same thing uh, that Paul says about the heavens and the earth, uh, kind of almost like a death and resurrection of, the, of all the creation, not just us, but creation itself. Romans Chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. You're seeing this is all through Scripture. Paul writes there, Romans 8, 18 to 21, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he knew quite a bit of them, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus, in saving us from our sins, also guaranteed a new creation, a new heavens and earth. Creation itself will be freed from bondage, not by being destroyed forever, but by being destroyed and made new. 
Creation itself is not going to be annihilated and done away with. It's going to be set free from its bondage to corruption, Paul says. You know, that creation back in Genesis 1, the very end of Genesis chapter 1, what did God say after he made everything? Every day of creation, God saw that it was good. At the very end, what does it say in Genesis 1, 31? He saw everything that he made and it was all, adds a word, very good until sin entered the picture. Well, one day it will be that way again. It will all be very good. Second thing, not just a new heavens and a new earth, as great as that is, there's also going to be a new Jerusalem, verse 2, John writes. What's Jerusalem? The city of God's people, the center of God's earthly kingdom in the Old Testament, the capital city of God's people at the time, the location, most importantly, of the tabernacle and the temple where God was to dwell with man. All that is going to be, in a sense, made new as well. The heavenly reality is going to outdo all the shortcomings of that earthly city. The new Jerusalem will finally be rightly called, verse 2, the holy city. Now, I'm not saying, I hope you don't think I'm saying, that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. In fact, in the rest of Revelation, it says there's not going to be a temple anymore. Just like there's not going to be a sun or anything, because we don't need that. Why? The Lamb uh, is, our, is our light. But this city's not going to be made by us. It's not going to be made with hands. Where does this city come down from? I already kind of spoiled it, right? It comes down from heaven. What does that mean? God's the builder. God is the one who makes it and brings it down. Hebrews 11, verses 9 through 10, it says this of our father Abraham. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, you know, the land of Canaan, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Here it is. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What was Abraham hoping for? What was his hope? What was his, what was he looking forward to by faith in God's promise? An earthly city? Having a patch of land however big, was that the main fulfillment of God's promise? No. He lived there, he got to see it with his own eyes, but he dwelled there with tents. And why did he dwell there in a tent, as it were? Because he wasn't looking for that place, he was looking for a city that has foundations, real foundations, a city whose designer and builder is God. Now, our text kind of mixes up the metaphors a little bit, doesn't it? John says this new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, quote, as a bride adorned for her husband, verse 2. You know, in a sense, you know, we should be looking for and, and, and longing for heaven like we do our wedding day. Now, our wedding days can be stressful too, but you look forward to it. You mark it on the calendar. You can't wait. That's, that's the day. Well, in, a, in a different way, this is the wedding to, to end all weddings. This is the greatest wedding of all time, and that's what this city coming down is pictured as. Now, is this New Jerusalem a city or a people? Maybe it's both. I don't know. But verse, verse 3, look what John says. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the point. Whatever you think the New Jerusalem is, that's what it really is. It's the place where God dwells with man. What, did the, what was the earthly Jerusalem a picture of? What was the temple a picture of? God's, what's, what's the temple called? God's house. Now, can, does God dwell in a house made with hands? No. Can he be contained? No, the scripture says that. But it was God's house where he dwelled in the midst of his people. That's what makes heaven heaven, being with God. 
forever. Not being with God, without that, heaven isn't heaven. It's just the absence of hell. And that is not what we are promised. We're promised dwelling with God, tabernacling with us forever. He will make his dwelling permanently with us, and we will be his people, and he will be with us as our God. Now, maybe you're hearing that, you're saying, that sounds familiar. Well, those things, in a sense, are already true now. Is God dwelling with us now? He's dwelling within us now by his Holy Spirit, who seals us for the day of redemption. But one day, our faith will be made sight. And we will have the full, unbroken, unspoiled joy of being with the Lord forever. Forever free, not just of sin's penalty and its power, but also from its presence. That should be something, I think the older you get in the faith, the more that appeals to us. The more we just want to be, we we can't even imagine what that's like, to be in a world free of sin and the miseries that come along with it. Well, that's what we are, are promised here in this city where God will dwell with us as our God. Well, finally, all the misery that God's people have endured in this fallen world of sin and misery are going to be no more. He's going to make all things new. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the former things, verse 4, have passed away. It's not just the heavens and the earth that pass away. It's that whole way of existence with sin is going to pass away. And this is because God, verse 5, the Lord will make all things new. Not just material things, not just physical things, not just a material change, but a change in everything in every way. Kind of sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? We can't really comprehend what that would be like. And yet, what does he say? He tells John to write it down. It's as if he knows that our hearts are thinking, this is too good to be true, there's no way. So God himself says to John, he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's like he's saying, I know what you, I know what you're thinking. You think this is too, too good to be true and this is some kind of exaggeration. Write this down and watch. And see that God's word never falls. Write this down. God, God doesn't stutter or misspeak. God doesn't do what we do. He doesn't overpromise and underdeliver like we do. He always does what he says. God keeps his promises. No word of God falls to the ground. He follows through on his threatenings to the unrepentant, and he also follows through on all of his promises. As Paul says in Romans 3, let God be true, but every man be a liar. Well, in conclusion, we have to look at verses 6 through 8 as well, or or rather maybe let those verses examine us. Look at verses 6 through 8. It says, and he said to me, after all this, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, or the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, the text, uh, with good reason, wants us to, to think on who will and who will not be dwelling with God in this new heaven and new earth. Who is it that's going to have every tear wiped away and all the miseries of sin wiped away as well? Who is and who is not? The, those who are, it's those who are thirsty, who are described as being thirsty, who thirst after God, who have nothing of their own 
with which to offer him for his mercy and grace. Those who cast themselves fully on God's mercy in Jesus Christ, they and they only will be given what? The spring of the water of life without payment or freely. Freely, without payment. What does that mean? It's by God's grace alone. Those who conquer don't get in because they're conquerors on their own. They get in by God's grace only and alone by God's grace. The one who conquers by faith in Jesus Christ is going to inherit all the things spoken of in this passage. And God will be his God and he will be a son to God. This is, this is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8.37. When he says the one who con- you know, talks about conquering, Paul says, in all these things, all, you know, death and persecution and all these things, in all these things we are more than conquerors, how? Not by our own doing, but through him who loved us. He's talking about the cross, the death of of the Son of God incarnate for our sins and his resurrection. And so this text, I believe, is asking us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Are Are you in Christ by faith? Are you in Jesus Christ by faith in him and his grace this morning? That is the only way to be a conqueror. As Paul says in that text in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors or super conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. If you want to be a, one of the conquerors spoken of in this passage, it's only by faith in Christ and by his grace alone. But there will be those who will not share in this inheritance, whose portion and end will be the lake of fire that burns, uh, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur at the second death. Now, Who are these? And we have to examine this as well. These are not conquerors, but cowards. That's a strong word that that, uh, John uses here in our text. Not conquerors, but cowards. The faithless or the unbelieving. The detestable. Murderers. Sexually immoral. Sorcerers. You know, those who who practice magic arts and, and false religions. Idolaters. Those who worship something other than God. Whether it be a statue or something in their own Hearts and desires. Then he adds in verse 8, all liars, all liars, those whose lives are, are described by those things, whether or not they profess faith, if, if that describes your life, if that describes the, the path of your life, the tone of your life, then any profession of faith that is, that is being made is given the lie there, isn't it? This is what, this, this is not a description of God's redeemed people, whom he has given new life to by the work of his spirit. I hope and pray that that is not true of anybody in this room. But I think the fact that it says all liars should should make us think very long and hard. We, We tend to think, as I know many of you have talked to people like this, as I have in my own family, that think, well, hell's just really for the really, really, really bad people. Well, they're not wrong. They just have a wrong idea of who the really, really, really bad people are. Outside of Christ, that's all of us. Outside of Christ, we're all liars and idolaters and immoral and, in some sense, murderers and faithless and detestable. That's us on our own outside of Christ, every last one of us. That, if that is true of you now, I, I, I hope that you realize these verses are given for good reason. They're given here as a warning, aren't they? You know, and, and warnings like this are evangel- they're evangelistic in nature. You know, God gives warnings through his prophets to, to call people to repent while there is yet time to turn to Christ and live. And so if you are not yet in Christ, use these verses. Think on them long and hard 
and let them draw you to repentance and faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and your unbelief. Turn to Jesus Christ by faith, and your portion will not be in the lake of fire, but you will have the spring of the water of life without payment and live forever with the Lord in heaven.